Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So, question I've got for you as we talk about being sealed with a pledge tonight from Ephesians, the first chapter. We're looking at our identity in Christ. And um, we come down to the passage where it's the last of those blessings in that first section that we have in our identity in Christ. Let me ask you a question about how safe did we feel? Uh, The picture up there, a lot of our kids don't know what it means, and that's a good thing, I guess. But how safe did we feel in the 20th century? You know, there's some key moments, some before we were born, some that we remember. Uh, 1914 in Sarajevo, the shot heard around the world that destabilized the whole world for many years to come. The event in 1929, where the stock market plummeted, the bottom fell out, we were in a deep depression for about six or seven years. Southern Baptist Convention almost went into default. We didn't recover until 1945. The day the music died, oh, I shouldn't mention that. (laughs) That, in fact, was this past week. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read about the Big Bopper and what was his name? Buddy Holly. But in that same era, November 1963, I remember exactly where I was. I was in uh, eighth grade history class in Germany when I heard that President Kennedy had been assassinated. Um, 1945, I mean 1940, December 1940. I wasn't around then, but some of you remember it. The day of what? What did Roosevelt say? The day of infamy. So those kind of bring up pictures in our mind of the past um, past century. How, how safe did we feel? You know, in the arms race, we had what we call second strike capability. What that means is if they hit us first, we've still got enough left to hit them so that they don't want to hit us first. That's what it really meant. We had enormous nuclear capability. We had what we call MAD, M-A-D, Mutually Assured Destruction. We built up our arsenal so great in such a large number that we knew that the other side would not strike because it meant there would be what? Mutual destruction. You know, at one time, America had 11,000 missiles with a delivery of 4,100 megatons. The Soviet Union had only 10,000, but they had doubled that payload, 8,200 megatons. Well, what does that mean? Those are just names and numbers to most folks. A megaton is a million ton, it's a destructive power of a million tons of TNT. A megaton is 50 times the power of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Very destructive. Russia tested a bomb in the 1960s that was over 3,000 times the power of the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. We had enough power in our nuclear arsenals combined together to destroy 600,000 Hiroshima's. Now, to put that in perspective, today, we have only about, in Russia, also, the two nations together, each, well, each of them has about 20,000 municipalities. 
put those together, 40,000. That's a, that, that was 15 times the cities and towns we have today. Well, I made allusion to this the other evening when I talked about being in the sixth grade, seventh grade, hiding under desks. <laughs> you know, that's kind of humorous when you think about it. It wasn't much protection. The current nu nuclear situation is uh, still pretty serious. You know, there are 13,000 warheads <clears throat> stockpiled around the world. 90% of them belong to the United States and Russia. To this day, the Swiss have a law that requires every new building that is built to have a fallout shelter in it. They have enough fallout shelters in uh, Switzerland for everyone immediately, within about five minutes, to walk and to get into one. And you know, the thing that's a little disconcerting is even though we've been through disarmament, uh, we live in an just as dangerous a world. We've gone from five nuclear powers that have warheads to how many? Nine. And one of them is North Korea. And I make no bones about it. I consider North Korea a rogue state. Not everybody agrees with me. But there are other states that are seeking nuclear power. And the disconcerting thing about it is we also have terrorists. If a terrorist group were to take over a rogue state that had nuclear power, can you imagine the hostage situation we would find ourselves in? So nuclear destruction isn't number one on the list in our minds, but it ought to be something that we should be concerned about controlling. So what are the top 10 fears of Americans today? A recent poll was taken, interestingly enough, at the very top. Wow. <laughs> Corrupt government officials. Wow. Yeah, that, that used to be something that, well, that, that's those guys. They've got the corrupt officials. And I'm not saying that we do. I'm just saying this is a fear of the Americans', Americans minds. And of course, the possibility of a loved one dying or getting a terminal disease or becoming seriously ill. Recently, you can understand why it's risen to number three on the list, civil unrest, the pandemic, financial collapse, 2008. I'll mention that in just a moment. Number six, cyber terrorism. Number seven, biological warfare. It's interesting, it's replaced nuclear warfare in that place. Mass shootings and hate crimes. Do you have enough money for retirement? And how about those medical bills, high medical bills? I think there are four real threats that most of us have seen recently that come to mind as we think about, do we really live in a stable world? You know, the defining moment for this generation in the 21st century wasn't uh, Pearl Harbor. It, it wasn't the shooting of Kennedy. It was what? 9-11. 9-11. It's hard to believe that that's been over 20 years ago. COVID, 400 million people have been infected, almost 6 million have died. The economy, financial stability. You know, in 2007 to 2009, if you had money in the stock market and you decided to pull it out because you got scared, you did it at the wrong time. You need to wait it out because most people's portfolios dropped 50%. Dow fell 60%. Financial stability, cybersecurity. In 2020, there is an organization that officially registers complaints about vulnerabilities to cyber terrorism, and there were almost 19,000 complaints registered in 2020. Are you safe at your computer? Is our government safe at its computers? Identity theft. 33% of Americans 
have suffered identity theft to the tune of over $50 billion. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot when you're looking at trillion-dollar uh, economy, but, you know, that means that probably an, the average person has been thieved uh, to the tune of about $50,000. It's pretty significant. 15 million Americans every year, one every 14 seconds. And then health care. Health care and medical bills. We spend about $4 trillion in America on health care now. And they expect in the next four or five years it's going to jump to $6 trillion. That's about $18,000 per person. And of course, the concern that we have is do I have enough money myself to pay the deductible? And if you're not insured, heaven forbid, cost over $5,000 a day for a hospital stay. One in four Americans has trouble paying his or her hospital bills, and one out of three Americans puts off some kind of serious surgery or treatment because they don't have the money. So it begs the question, after a fairly long introduction, how safe did we feel, how safe do we feel, and where do we find our security? That's the question. And that's the question that is answered in these two verses in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I know the things that I've been talking about are everyday, real-world problems, health, finances, and that sort of thing. But you know, sometimes we get so consumed with those everyday issues and they're real issues that we forget eternal matters. And when we put it in perspective and we think about this life of, I used to say three score and 10. Now that I'm past that point, I like the part where it says or more years on this earth is only a blink of an eye in comparison to the time of the universe, 13.8 billion years. And it's not even a blink of an eye in terms of eternity and the security that we have in the Lord forever. And of course, that's what this is talking about. You know, um, the Ephesians uh, faced some serious problems. They, like most folks in their day, did not know where the next meal was coming from. They worked from day to day. They worked from hand to mouth, many of them. Some of them had been slaves. The Ephesian church was going to face persecution just as many other Christians before the end of the century. And so they faced very real, real problems that Paul could have addressed, that he did address here in terms of the perspective in, in uh, eternal matters. So we talked about blessings of the people that are identified as God, God's people, our identity in Christ. And when I started about three weeks ago, I talked about five blessings in this passage, and then Chris picked up on a couple of them last week, and they are basically these. And we come to the fifth one. The first one was that God's people, their identity is found in that they are holy because they are chosen before the foundation of the world to be what? Holy, to be blameless. Secondly, a second blessing of that identity is that we're family. We have a family identity. We have a, we have a spiritual DNA. That is, we are predestined for what? Adoption. Those that are chosen are predestined for adoption into God's family. And then we talked last week about having been rescued, redeemed and forgiven in verse number seven. 
And then Chris also talked about being heirs. Once again, predestined to heirship. Predestined for an inheritance in verse number 11. So those four blessings lead us to the last one that wraps things up tonight. And that is that we're secure. Even in an unsafe world, an insecure world, we know this one thing. We are secure because we have been sealed with a spirit who is a pledge. We've been sealed with a pledge. So tonight, the outline goes something like this. In verse number 13a, that is the first part of the verse, we see that we are safe in Christ. We're safe in Christ. So you feel safe? Sometimes we don't feel safe, but we know from Scripture that in eternal ways, we are truly safe in Christ. And in fact, He watches over us day by day, and He walks with us day by day as well. In 13b, in the last part of that verse, we see secondly that we are secure in the Holy Spirit. We're safe in Christ, we're secure in the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in verse number 14, this is all sealed with an assurance that comes from the uh, Holy Spirit that has sealed us with His pledge. We're assured, and we have assurance, blessed assurance, not only is Jesus mine, but blessed assurance, we have the pledge of the Holy Spirit that gives us assurance. So let's take a look at those three points. First of all, we are safe in Christ. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. It's important. It begins with two things. It begins and ends with two things that are connected. In Him, we have also believed. And that's the key. The condition for this safety in Christ is the condition. That is the thing that we perform, the condition that we perform in order to be saved. And there is a condition. Salvation is by grace, and it's unconditional in this respect. He offers it unconditionally, but there's a condition that goes along with that. For by grace you're saved, what? Through faith. The condition there we find in Ephesians 2 is faith, and we find that it is the same here. The condition for safety is faith. It begins with listening. You know, it's not just enough to hear the gospel. Hearing is necessary. There's no question about that. It's hearing the gospel is necessary to be saved. Paul tells us this in Romans. How shall they call upon the one that they have not believed in? And how shall they believe in the one whom they have not, what, heard about? So we, we have to hear the gospel. But hearing is not enough. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses here the same word for list hearing, for listening here, akuo. But it means more than just to hear here. It means to hear with understanding. We have to be careful with our grammatical approach to the Greek language. Ask Joe and others. You know, it's not always this way, but one of the patterns in um, Greek language is this. Usually, usually when you've got this word hearing with a genitive, that is a possessive sense, it usually means to hear, but you don't necessarily understand. Not always. But when it's used with the accusative, it almost always means not just to hear something, but to hear it with understanding. And that is the way it is used here. That's why it's translated by most modern versions as listening. You have listened. That means that you have heard it, you have understood it, and you've understood it in a way that it leads to action. And the action is found at the end of the first part of this verse. The action is believing. It's also that you have personally appropriated the message. Safety in Christ is not just believing. Generally, the whole church believes. Generally, Christians believe. But you 
you and I personally appropriate that. Um, you know, it's not enough just to follow the witness of others. It's, we've had to have personal ownership. Paul, Paul, in verse number 12, speaks about himself. He says, you know, we were, and those that brought the message to you, among the first to hear the gospel and to respond to it. Well, that's good. And so the messengers come to Ephesus, but in what he's saying here is, I'm talking about your salvation and your believing. And so safety in Christ, of course, isn't just that our parents believe. It isn't just that our family believes. It's not just that we come to a church where everyone believes, but of course... And this is obvious. He says here, you, what does he say? Also believed in verse number 13. So the, the, the condition is faith and it's personal faith. The means of this safety is the gospel of salvation. It's your salvation, but it's also the gospel of salvation. And not to get too technical with the grammar, it can have, a couple, it can have about five different meanings. And I see two possible meanings here. What is the gospel of salvation? It can mean the good news, of course, the good news which produces salvation. It can also mean the good news that is salvation. So which is it? I think yes. I think it's both. I think both are perfectly appropriate applications grammatically. You see, this is the gospel that produces your salvation, and it is the gospel that is salvation. It produces a salvation by doing what? It's the good news of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to us. We hear that, we listen, we understand, and we respond in faith. It's also, it is salvation. It's not just that message that brings salvation. Jesus Christ went about in his early ministry preaching the good news. What was it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So that's the message. But the gospel itself is salvation. Hmm. Romans 1 puts it this way. We read it earlier today. Right. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It what? Now the verb is implied here, but it's very powerful, even its implication. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, it is. It doesn't just deliver, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God was revealed from what? Faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We don't read that passage only on Reformation Day, okay? Although we read it then. So, it is this gospel of salvation that produces salvation, and it is salvation, and it is equated with the what? The message of truth. Well, what is this message of truth? I think it's a couple of things. Uh, number one, it is a message that was produced by Christ. And who applies the message of truth? The Holy Spirit. So, it is produced by Christ, this message of truth. How so? Well, the word there is the word of truth. The lagos of the aletheia. The lagos of truth. Oh, and you know what I'm going to say. Jesus Christ is what? The word. So he is the word that produced the truth. And he is the lagos. He is the one that created it all. So he is the one that produces it. It is embodied in him. 
It comes from the Logos. It's the word of truth who is Jesus Christ. I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. But it's applied by the Holy Spirit because he, we know from John the 14th chapter, we said it this morning in closing, John the 14th chapter says, I'm going to send you a helper. Don't worry, I'm not going to abandon you like orphans. I'm going to send you a helper. And then it's interesting. You know, we, we typically speak of the, the Holy Spirit being the paraclete, and he is, and the comforter. And we emphasize that, emphasis, that, that exhortation and encouragement and comfort and strength. But here he calls him the Holy Spirit. He calls the Spirit the what? The Spirit of truth. So you see, the message of truth is applied by the spirit of truth. And as we said this morning in closing in John 16, then he says, and this spirit of truth is going to reveal all truth to you. So this gospel is a message that is produced by the truth that is Jesus Christ. It is applied by the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth. And the goal of it all is to what? To be, and it begins this way. You have believed in him. And once again, this is a phrase that runs through Ephesians about 10 or 11 times. But the idea proliferates in Ephesians. When you take in the Lord, in Christ, in Him, it is one of the main themes of Ephesians, to be in Christ. Just look at chapter 1 very quickly. Uh, look at verse 1. We are faithful where? In Christ Jesus. Verse number 3. We have spiritual blessings where? In Christ, where is he? Noah mentioned just a moment ago, isn't it interesting that he is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty at his throne and he is doing what? He is making intercession. He's also guarding this inheritance that we have. Verse number four, we are chosen before the foundation where? In Christ. Verse number six, grace is freely bestowed in the agapetos, the what? The beloved. Verse number 7, we have the redemption and forgiveness in Him. Verse number 9, God purposed His kind intention, not just to us, yes, it is to us, but He purposed His kind intention of election in Him. And you to, I've told you my, my understanding of that. I believe Christ is the elect and we are in Him. In verse number 10, everything is summed up where? In Christ. Verse number 10 and 11, we have an inheritance that is predestined in Him. Verse number 12, we put our hope in Christ. Verse number 13, we come to it. Because we have believed in Him later in verse 13. We're going to see in a moment we're sealed in Him. And then before the chapter ends in verse number 15, we have a reputation by which we are known. And when people look at us, they call us what? Christians. We have an identity in Him, and that's our reputation. So this idea of being in Him is a key motif in Ephesians, and it is the object. He is the object. That relationship of faith is the object that brings safety. And finally then, on this first point, we're safe in Christ. The result is what? What is this safety? If we've listened to the gospel, and we have believed, and we are in Him, the result is salvation. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter. Receiving the end of our faith. What is the end of your faith? The end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So, we're saved. But we're not just saved. We think of being saved as something for a future 
It's an investment in the future. After we die, we're saved. We go to heaven. We have eternal life. And that's true. Okay? By God's grace. But at the same time, we are what now? We are safe. Even under the mushroom cloud. Even when the financial markets crash. Even when the pandemic wave comes in the, the next variant. What comes after Omicron? Who knows they're Greek? And it's probably out there. What is it, Joe? Hi. Rose, Sigma Tau. How many variations we're going to have, we don't know. But we are, we are safe. Okay, so secondly, we are secure in the spirit. Secure in the spirit. That's the last part of verse 13. What does it say? You were sealed in him. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This parallel passage, which interestingly enough, Noah, you read, didn't you? Yes. Then why did you do that? Why did I read? No, well, no. What made you pick that? <laughs> well, because I saw it was greatly related to 13 and 14. Right. And I guess just the Holy Spirit. Do you have a lexicon? No. Okay. <laughs> but you found it. Yeah. It, is the, it is the parallel passage to this verse. I commend you. <laughs> so, what does it say? Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us his God, and listen to this, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. You can't get a better parallel passage to what Paul is saying to the Ephesians than what he said to the Corinthians. So this is not just a message to the Ephesians, it's to the Corinthians, it's also to the Gambrelites, it's to the church today. We are sealed where? In Him. This isn't just about the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that's important. You know, the, Jesus, when He talks about the Spirit of truth coming, what He's doing is He's encouraging them. He's saying, look, you're not going to be by yourself. I'm going to send you, and He's going to be with you, and the world doesn't know Him. It doesn't know, doesn't know me. And He's going to abide with you, and He's going to be with you. So there's... Yes, it, it, it is about the presence of the, whole, of, of the Holy Spirit himself, and that's important. But it's also that we're safe in Christ. It's about being in Christ once again, isn't it? I don't understand how this works. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, physically, bodily, corporally present, and he will return that way. Just as you saw him ascend, so he will return. He has a corporal presence, but he also is present with us here. For lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. John 14, I will not leave you comfortless. And in addition to saying he's sending the Holy Spirit, he says, I will what? I will come to you. And I think he means more than just the presence of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I live, but Christ who is at the right hand. No, what he is, but Christ who is in me. So this is not only about, it's not about a bifurcation of the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, keep them in their right places, okay? The Holy Spirit has come. He is present with us, and we are in Christ, and Christ is not distant and far removed. He is with us tonight. And I have to be careful about how I preach because he's listening. Right? I have to be faithful to the truthful word of God. What the Holy Spirit does, I think, is he binds us then in that relationship with Christ. He is the bonding agent. We're sealed in him. That's part of what's happening here with the sealing. And there are four results of this being sealed. 
Why do I say four results? Because if you, if you do look at Strong's concordance or another kind of concordance that explains it, it comes with, a, up with about three or four definitions. So I'm going to use that as a basis of looking at what it means to be sealed. Number one of those is that we're secured. We're secured. To be sealed means that, that we're permanently safe in Christ. Look later in chapter 4, verse number 30. And it says, we are sealed not just in this lifetime. But we are sealed unto the day of redemption. So we're permanently secure. Secondly, we're hidden. You know, when you put something in an envelope, a uh, king puts something in an envelope maybe, and then close the flap of the envelope, or whatever, a scroll, and put a seal on it, it was closed. So could anybody see what was in that document or in that envelope until the seal was broken? No. There's, an, there's this idea of being hidden under the seal as well. And we are. We are hidden where? Just as it says that they put a seal on the tomb of Jesus Christ and he was hidden behind that rock. Just as it says someday the depths of hell, the bottomless pit, is going to be sealed. It's going to be closed. Maybe that's not a good analogy when I talk about being hidden. <laughs> that's not where we're going to be hidden. We are going to be hidden where? In Christ. In Christ. How do I know? Colossians 3.3. 3. For you died and your life is now. Even now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Wow. And it brings up this image that Jesus talks about in John when he talks about being secure. You are in my hand and I am in whose hand? I am in the Father's hand. You see, in that respect, we're hidden in him. We're secure eternally. We're hidden in Christ and we are marked that's another thing that seals do. The father set his seal upon his son. He marked him. This is my son whom I love. With him I am what? Well, please. This is my son whom I love. Mount of transfiguration. Do what? Listen to him. You see, so he put his mark upon his son. Revelation 7 says that we will have his mark upon us. The servants of God will be sealed with his mark on their what? Foreheads. Now I know that's metaphorical, but it clearly does mean that God knows who is his own. The Lord knows and sees those who are his own. This seal has marked us as being his. Second Timothy 2, he tells his disciple, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. And what is the seal? The Lord knows those who are his. You have been marked and he knows who you are. And hopefully the, Lord, the world knows who you are because you give evidence of it, even though you're hidden in Christ. And then finally, we're authenticated, we're validated. John heard Jesus' testimony, and when he heard that testimony, he said what? <clears throat> I know what's happening. <laughs> I know what it meant when I saw the dove descend upon him and not depart. I know that God is faithful and true. And what, what language did John use? And he said, I'm telling you this, I set my seal on that. It's a pretty bold statement for John to make. For John to say, I put the seal on the statement that God is faithful and true. But those are the words of the Holy Spirit through John. So in that sense, in that sense, in that sense, <laughs> the, um, what we have is the authentication of the message of God. Well, we are also authenticated the same way. You see, we are validated that, in fact, we're God's children. 
our identity. We talked about being part of the family of God. I said this two weeks ago. How do we know that? What authenticates that? What validates that? What makes us sure that we are God's children? His spirit bears witness to our spirit. You see, there is the seal of the spirit that we are his children. And if so, we are what? Heirs. And if we're heirs, we're what? We're joint heirs with Christ. So then we come down to the spirit of promise. The spirit of promise in this verse. The word here means literally to make a promise. It can mean that. It can mean to make an announcement. I promise. This is my promise. Promise is a verb. This is my promise is the noun. But when I do that, I make an announcement. I'm promising this to you. And that's what can be happening here. It can also mean the promised object. I promise this and then when I receive it, I say I have received the the promise. It can be the object. Or it can be the agent. It can be the one that is the promiser. He is the promise. Take a look at it. First of all, the Holy Spirit announces. Does the Holy Spirit announce the will and the ways of God? Yes. And in so doing, He announces. He is the Holy Spirit. I promise. He announces the promises of God. For He tells us God's will and God's ways. And in that will and way, He gives us the gospel. And He tells us about, tells us about the promise in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, the Spirit of promise. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. Those things that are freely given to us by God are the fulfillment of His promises, and it is the Holy Spirit that announces those. So He's a Spirit of promise in as much as we know the things that are promised by God because we read them in His Word. And who is the author of that word? God through the Holy Spirit. Announcement. The Holy Spirit is also the spirit of promise. He is the object, in a way. He is the promise. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus is the promise. Well, Jesus is the promise, but the Holy Spirit is the promise, too. How do I know? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said to his disciples that he was going to, in Luke 24, to send the promise of his Father to the disciples. Now that's Luke 24. That's the very end of Luke. What's he talking about? He picks the story back up in Acts and that promise is fulfilled. The promise of the Father is none other than the person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you stay in Jerusalem until you receive it. The Holy Spirit is the promise of God. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Acts 1 until the promise of the Father arrived. And it's the Holy Spirit. And friends, for Jesus, the Holy Spirit was the spirit of promise. That's amazing. It says that he received from the Father in Acts 2. Go look it up at Pentecost. It says that Jesus had received the promise of the Father and then he poured it out. You know, there's a lot of debate between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Orthodox Church about the procession of the Holy Spirit. The Eastern Church says the Holy Spirit came only from the Father. The Western Church says it came from the Father and the Son. I believe it comes from the Father through the Son because of this passage. He received the Holy Spirit from the Father and he poured it out. There it is. It's the promise of the Father. So the Holy Spirit not only announces as the promise, he also is the promise and the Holy Spirit is the agent of promise. He fulfills God's promise of salvation. How does he do it? How do we come to know the Lord? We're first convicted of our sin by whom? Holy Spirit. 
and then redemption is applied to us. Salvation is applied to us when we call upon the name of the Lord and we're saved. In Acts 2, what shall we do? We then call upon Him, we believe in Him, and we're baptized. And then what happens? We receive the Holy Spirit. He delivers the gift of redemption. He is the agent. He is the agent of promise because He is the one that equips the church, empowers the church, and emboldens the church. He is the agent of the promise because he then gives us confidence, as we will see in verse 14 in just a moment, through the assurance of salvation. So this spirit of promise, he does many things. And then we find, finally, that we're eternally secure in the triune Godhead through this process in the last part of verse 13. You see, the promises of God originate with whom? In the Trinity, where did the promises of God originate? With the Father. Who secured those promises? Through His shed blood, Jesus Christ. And who applies them? The Holy Spirit. You see, that says something to us. The triunity, the Trinity of the Godhead that is eternal. These promises were known by them before the foundation of the world. They have been delivered and they are eternal. They were secured by the Son in 2 Corinthians 1. For as many are the promises of God, many promises are made. In Him, Christ, they are, and He uses one word to describe it. What? The promises of God in Christ are what? Yes! yes. Here they are. Therefore also through Him in our, is our amen to the glory of God through us. And those promises are applied by the Holy Spirit. I said that was the last thing in this verse. There's one other thing. These promises are covenantal. They're not contractual. We don't earn them. We don't deserve them. They're part of God's covenant where he freely gives us to them based on his promise. There's, condi there's condition. But they're covenantal. And what does this mean? In the covenant, nothing should be taken for granted. You know, we talk about assurance, blessed assurance. We talk about being certain, and that's great. But sometimes, folks, assurance and certainty can lead to our taking these things for granted. You know what I mean? It can almost lead to a kind of arrogance. Well, I know I'm saved, you know. No, it should never be that way. It must be humility and accountability and cooperation. You see, he makes a pledge to the Spirit, and then he expects us to do what? He expects us to fulfill our part of the covenant, to keep our pledge as well. Hebrews 6 says, Show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. You might fill in a few other adjectives there too. Arrogant, self-righteous, so on and so forth. So that you will not be sluggish. But imitate, imitators of those who through faith and patience. And that word faith means not just to believe. You know what it means. It means to be faithful. And patience, you might inherit, fill in the noun, the promises. You see, he made a pledge to us through the Holy Spirit. And when we believed in Christ and we came into him, we made a pledge. And the pledge was what? To be patient and faithful to the end. And then finally, we are assured by God's pledge in verse number 14. Who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is given as a pledge. This is a pledge of God Himself. This is the divine pledge personified in the Holy Spirit. He is the human agent about which we have spoken. And 
divinely personified. You know, this is almost like a last will and testament, a pledge that is made on behalf of God to us. And you know what the author of Hebrews says about that. When a pledge or a promise is made in a testament, it requires a what? It requires a death. He says this, For where a covenant is, and we've described this relationship as a covenant, there must be a necessity, the death of the one who made it. For the covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced with the one who made, when the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. So in this pledge relationship that we're talking about, and in this covenant relationship, we need to remember the basis of it was the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And now what's happening is the Holy Spirit comes along and he pledges this. He pledges in that covenant, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the promised redemption that is for you. He's pledging you that it will be fulfilled. Is our redemption complete? No. Oh, Christ has fulfilled everything necessary for our redemption. But our redemption is not complete until what? We, either he comes again or we go to meet him. And then it is fulfilled. Then it is complete. And we live in that hope. And it's not just an ethereal, ethereal hope. It is the certainty, the hope that is within us that we have been defending apologetically on Sunday morning. Christ secured this with his blood. And the Holy Spirit now is saying, I'm pledging this to you. There may be sometimes you doubt. There may be even times when you doubt whether God exists and you're challenged and assailed by all these worldly beliefs and your, your, your faith is a little weak. I'm telling you this is true and I will fulfill the pledge of God. The pledge, you see, is God's down payment. That's literally what it means, the arrow bone of God. It's the earnest. What does it remind you of? How many of you all have bought a house or something else where you had to put down what? Down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment of God. It's the earnest of God. It guarantees that God will fulfill his promise, that he will complete the purchase that was made by Christ. The Holy Spirit, then, is God's personal down payment. How do we know this? 2 Corinthians 1. He also sealed us and has given us the earnest, who is the Spirit in our hearts. 2 Corinthians 5. Now, he who prepared for us this very purpose, that is eternal life, is God who gave us the Spirit as a what? As a pledge. The pledge is two or three things. The pledge is about an inheritance, it's about redemption, and it's about God's own possession. The inheritance. Last three things. Our inheritance in this verse. Our inheritance is, if we are in Christ, our inheritance is secured in heavenly places in Christ, and Peter tells us it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's reserved in heaven. And this inheritance then is the promise of heirship to us because we are joint heirs with Christ. We are, in fact, Abraham's seed, he tells us in Galatians. Now you stop and think about that. That's a pretty remarkable promise for, for Paul to make to the Ephesians. The Ephesians were Gentile pagans. And here Paul is telling them, now you have become what? Abraham's seed. Amazing. Remarkable. And sometimes we take this for granted. Most of us are Gentiles. And we take it for granted. The initial promise, the, the promise of God initially came through Israel, of course, for all nations. But what a great privilege it is for us to have this. Think about it. 
Out of the billions and billions and billions of people that have ever lived on the face of this planet, how many have lived? Some uh, demographers say that probably about 15 billion people have lived on this planet. Probably about as many lived before that are living now. So how many? Out of billions and billions and billions of people, what a privilege it is for us to be God's children. Not something that we're arrogant about. As a matter of fact, we don't want to be the only one of God's children. He wants us to go out and share the message so that all might be saved. But think about it. Go back to this morning's sermon. Is it accidental or intentional? It was intentional. And this passage says it's intentional. For we have been chosen before the foundation of the world because God knew that we would be in Christ. Predestined. It's a predestined inheritance in verse number 11. It is a redemption. It is a pledge of redemption. For those who are in him, once again, redemption is the forgiveness of sin. And it comes through Christ's shed blood. And it is promised to those who respond to his call. And not just here in Ephesians, but in Hebrews. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, and we have been called, Ephesians 1, may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. Our redemption is for those who are called according to his purpose and those who respond by believing. And then last of all, the pledge is about being God's own possession. In the old covenant, who was God's own possession? Israel. He says it in Exodus 19. He says it again in Deuteronomy 7. I have chosen you as my own precious possession. In the new covenant, he says the same thing in 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen generation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of what? God's own possession. And it's interesting here. That, that word possession really means purchase. You are a people of God's own purchase. Wow. What does that mean? We are his possession because Christ purchased us. We have been purchased with his blood, with a great price. Now, here's something that's a little kind of mind-boggling to me in closing. You see, what he invites us to do here in the scripture, is he invites us to purchase this redemption for ourselves. Wait a minute. What does that mean? Let me explain it. You see, Isaiah beckoned Israel to purchase God's redemption. Now, that doesn't mean to work for it. What passage can you think of that reminds us of this? That we are called to come and to purchase, and yet we can't pay for it. We're called to come purchase the gift of God, and yet it is without price. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But what does Isaiah say in 55? Yo! Hey, you! He says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. That's a paradox. How can you buy with no money? Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Well, the New Testament, it is said much the same way in 1 Thessalonians. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for purchasing salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians, a little bit uh, earlier, he says, It was for this that he called you through the gospel that you may purchase the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying we earn our salvation. 
but the purchase has been made by Christ. We have been bought with a great price. And now what he calls us to do is to apply that purchase so that we might have that redemption. What is the currency? What is the money in God's kingdom that applies that free gift? Faith. You see, the monetary commodity, the currency of God's kingdom is faith. I think this is what it means here when it says that he is a pledge then of what? He is a pledge to be God's own purchase, his own possession when we believe then. Hebrews 10. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the purchasing of the soul. We know that there's no merit in us, that we might be able to buy it with our own riches. But we do what? We believe in the riches of Christ, and it is applied through whom? The Holy Spirit, who pledges that he will do it. So what is this pledge made by the Holy Spirit? If we trust in God, we become his own possession. If we believe in Christ, we are found in him. We will apply this redemption from sin and death by believing, and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he purchases, and it is applied to us. And it grants us an inheritance that is eternal. And we become joint heirs with Christ. What a great promise. How safe do you feel? I don't know what the stock market's going to do tomorrow. And I don't know whether Russia is going to invade the Ukraine. We do not know what tomorrow holds. But we know this with certainty. The redemption that we have and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord is certain, it is secure, and the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Whenever we have doubts and questions, friends, and we all do, the answer is very clear. We pray to God the Father, Jesus Christ intercedes for us, right Noah? And the Holy Spirit then, who dwells in us, will reassure us, he abides with us, and he will make that pledge certain and secure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.